This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Welcome to Beehive Banter. Is it like that old uncle we all have who we haven't seen for years, but when he finally turns up, insists on a big hug? Or more like a recurring rash that just keeps coming back no matter what medication is prescribed? Yes, one of the few people smiling after the latest News Hub Read research poll, Uncle Winnie, looking in two of the latest polls like he is back. Have we learnt nothing? Well, I think you've clearly learnt nothing because, in fact, we on Beehive Banter have been talking about New Zealand First being back since early June. Um, Some other news media seem to have picked up some very recent polls and got excited. But in fact, the signs have been there for a long time. So I think the yeah. only excited person was Paddy Gower or Winston. Yeah, but I mean, but I mean, all I'm saying is, you know, it's sort of the same suddenly that people are saying, oh, breaking news, New, Z- New Zealand first looks as though they'll get back. Well, that's been the case for some time now. Okay, well, I stand rectified. Well, as I say, you've raised it yourself. In I've pre- got no memory. Yeah. <laughs> um, if he gets past that 5%, we'll be lucky to have a new government by Christmas because even if it's just that one seat, he is going to use it for everything. Look, everyone says that about Winston Peters. Which part about that's wrong? Pretty much all of it. Because it, it all goes back to 1996, the first MMP election, the first post-MMP negotiation, and New Zealand First took eight weeks. They took eight yeah. weeks. But he's done negotiations since 2005 and then 2017 much quicker. But the, the only thing that delayed 2017 was because a potential Labour, Greens, New Zealand First government on election night only had a two-seat majority, he waited, and they all waited, for the f- official results, which included the specials. And when the specials came in, Labour and the Greens both picked up a seat which turned it into a six-seat majority. And then actually the negotiations were done pretty quickly. So I don't think there'll be long protracted negotiations. I think they'll be difficult, but they won't be protracted because Winston Peters himself has talked about the need for a mini-budget yeah, before mini-budget Christmas. by Christmas, and he wants to see Nationals' tax costings before joining the government, before he allows them, by the looks of things, to have their tax cuts. Yeah, I mean, and so there'll be negotiation around that, and, and, and that will be interesting well, to see be, how... Because Luxon said in the debate that we'll talk about soon, he said he's prepared to resign if he doesn't give the tax cuts. Yeah. Not if, if it's funded a certain way. I think they'll find compromises. This is all, of course, based on the premise that they are in a position where they're negotiating a, a government. <laughs> now, well, let's, let's uh, talk about the polls, and if they are correct... Labour could be losing, and there's a lot of big names. Uh, Andrew Little, the Speaker, David Parker, Willie Jackson, Dr Aisha Verrill, possibly if things go really bad, Grant Robertson. Yeah, I know, but you know, at the moment... I mean, who's left? Well, I think, well, if you're looking at, what is it, um, 26% or so in that, that last poll, if that were the election result and that was just, you know, that's one poll, you, you're getting, what, about 30 MPs into Parliament. So that's, you know... And it depends. It'll depend, like obviously, on which seats they win. Because if you get a swing against Labour, which is clearly happening, they're not going to get the fifty percent they got at the last election. How much will that swing not only impact on list candidates, but how much will it impact on electorate um, MPs? Who so they may well lose. For instance, if it is that bad, they may lose some what might be seen as relatively safe Labour seats as well. So it'll all depend on how it all washes out. Um, but, you know, I mean, clearly they've got to be worried. They're looking at the polls, and it's not just one poll, it's a trend yeah. and a series of polls which show that um, they're not doing that well um, and that the centre-left in totality is probably, what, six, seven points behind yeah. um, National Act and particularly, and then if you throw in New Zealand first. I mean, the one thing, sorry, about going back to New Zealand first that's interesting is they're getting a lot of money from um, wealthy donors, $679,000 since the beginning of May. And, and you can you can imagine, and a number of those are people who have also donated to National. So it's almost like the wealthy donors are taking out an insurance policy. You know, they're making sure that if National just does fall short with ACT, it will have New Zealand first there 
to, to push it into government. So, yeah, it's kind of Be careful what you wish for. I asked last week what desperate vote-catching policies uh, we'd be seeing this week, and sure enough, getting tough on pyjama-wearing beneficiaries using traffic lights, the Greens to double best start payments, and I mentioned medication earlier, well, problem solved, with Labour saying another billion to Pharmac over four years. That's a great move, and it go for anyone with any illness. Bound to get another tick there, Brent. Yeah, um, well, the policy, the national policy on welfare, I mean, I think it's been a fairly well-run thing that National does about, you know, getting tough on beneficiaries. It plays well to a particular part of the constituency. Well, they're not going to vote for them anyway. Well, yeah, and even though a number of experts say that it's proven that those sorts of policies don't really work in terms of helping people back to work. I mean, and if you go back actually to as far back it's not as about that. 1991, it's about- they cut benefits, imposed sanctions, you know, thinking that this would be an encouragement to people f- to work because benefit was less, et cetera. But by the 1999, by the time that national government left office, there were another sixty or 70,000 people on benefits, over 400,000. So How many more got on benefits since then, though? Well, at the moment, there are only, um, what, uh, 300,000 on. on? I mean, there's fewer. <laughs> no. I mean, if, if we had the same level of people on benefits now as in 1991, in terms of population, there'd be over about 540,000 on the benefits. There's a lot less than that at the moment. It's very hard to argue figures with Brent, I have to say. Now, I mentioned, uh, that the, oh, yes, now all this money. Now, where's yeah. all the extra billions coming from all of a sudden? Because well, there's no it, money. It's, it's a billion dollars over four, four years. years. And if you that's look another two hundred and fifty million. Yeah, if you look at the pre-election economic and fiscal update. Yep. You know, as tight as that was, it still included these um, extra spending allowances for new spending in each budget. So three point five billion next year, and going down to three point two five, and then three billion a year after. So um, Labor's actually put out its fiscal plan. So they're going to borrow it. It's had it, it's had it reviewed and ticked off by so Brad Olson. It. No, it's going to be come out of the spending allowance is already set for the next three budgets. And at the moment, they can afford the election commitments they've made and still have some money left over in those allowances for future It just spending. seems a lot of policies lately, you know, with weeks out, just a couple of weeks out from the election and, and all this money's being thrown around. Well, it, yeah, well, when you think about it, compare it with previous elections, though, it's probably not, I mean, it, there isn't as much money being thrown around as you might have expected. I mean, you could well, have... The, the Greens, for example, I mean, they're mixed, you know, their, their policies mixed. are based on tax changes, which yeah, well, aren't going to happen. Yeah, that's right. Their policies based on tax changes, gathering more tax through a wealth tax and the yeah. like. And, yeah. yeah, we know that... Well, that's not going to happen. That won't happen. Um Chris Pipkins repeats again this week that if he is in a position to form a government, he will not agree to it. Well, let's talk about him. To the latest leaders uh, debate, and as you've made abundantly clear, you don't like these type of things, um, and this might be a surprise for oh, no, you. No, no, you no. made that. No, you said that last week after the first. You said you don't like these things. You said I don't uh, mind the debates if they're done properly. What I don't like is people then assessing them afterwards to work out who's the winner. Oh, well, I was just going to tell you that I think um, Hipkins yeah, was much stronger. Think, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think Hipkins was the winner. Yeah, I think... He was better. He was, yeah, you know. I think, you know, the, the, <laughs> this might be strange to say, but, but in general, you know, committed Labour voters would think Hipkins is the winner, so I don't know about that with you. <laughs> committed national voters would think um, Christopher Luxon is the winner. What do those who are going to vote for minor parties think? Doesn't really matter because they're not going to vote no. either way. They're going to... so then the question is, what about those undecided voters, those people who haven't yet kind of made up their mind? What would they think? And much of it might depend on the, you know, whatever a leader said about a particular issue of interest to them. And we're not in people's lounges to hear what they think of that debate. So you get a lot of political pundits making decisions like you, based on form, frankly, over substance in terms about how one person performed against the other. You very rarely get people analysing it on the basis, well, what did they actually say? What were the policy differences? And it might be the policy differences, actually, that might determine how people vote, or they might, like you, think, oh, he was really strong, I might vote for him. He's, did you think it was good. better under Paddy Gower? Look, um, not, not, not just um, Paddy Gower, the, the way that TV3 ran that debate, just as the way they ran their minor leaders' debate, they just let it breathe more. They let the leaders debate one another, whereas I think the One News debate, it didn't really allow for a debate. Now, one thing I have to tell you at, at this point, now, Brenton's saying he didn't like these things, and here's the proof. I rang him up to see if he was watching it, 
and he was doing the vacuum cleaning and he'd forgotten all about it. Just saying. Anyway. Uh, yeah, but I then switched no. on immediately. Yeah. Oh, hell, he said. <laughs> <laughs> to, the, <laughs> to the last week of the hustings. Are you expecting any surprises or are we going to all be glad that we're approaching the first finish line, which is when we can vote? Um, well, remember, we start voting on Monday. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, if last, the last election is any um, guide, that by election day, by October 14th, probably up to three quarters of people will have, have voted. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's too late, if you like, for any great change, any someone to pull a rabbit out of the hat that's going to um, shift it. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, the polling, and you can see this in Nationals approach. They're being pretty careful, um, and all. I, and you know, in terms of say the debate, all Christopher Luxon had to do was look, you know reasonably good and competent, and he did. He didn't have to win the debate per se, so he just didn't have to, you know, Lose completely. It. Well, he just didn't have to look like a complete, absolute idiot, and he, he didn't. <laughs> um, so, you know, a lot more pressure in that sense on Chris Hipkins, given where Labor is in the polls. And uh, But it, it's it's hard to see what might shift all of that. Yeah. All right, now I'm not here uh, next week, but I will be uh, back in the election week. But Brent, you're going to uh, keep uh, everyone up to date uh, with enough insight to make informed and intelligent vote decisions. Unless, of course, you've already made up your mind or you're sick of hearing about it. Yeah, well, once I've finished the vacuum cleaning. <laughs> As usual, thanks for taking the time. We'll see you soon. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. National Party leader Christopher Luxon will pick up the phone and ring New Zealand first after the election if he has to, but he would rather not. To talk about that and other things, I'm joined by New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters. Firstly, what do you make of Christopher Luxon's comments? It's rather odd, isn't it? Well, when I agreed to come on this show, he hadn't said that. I mean, I got all this uh, plethora of phone calls this morning from all sorts of journalists about something I'd never seen or heard about. And that was what Mr Luxon released by way of a um, video this morning. So I can't really answer why and how he did that. And other than to say, I'm astonished in this campaign with so many uh, critical issues are at stake it now we go into the next uh, seven days before the early voting and before the 14th of October and it's strange and surreal in the extent of uh, ignoring the big issues and the major concerns and this sort of circus politics. Well ju just very quickly if the phone does ring will you pick it up? Well of course one would pick the phone up uh, but I would have thought that was Obvious to any commentator, uh, given the situation the country's in, I've been saying for a long time out, this is no election for people to be holding grudges or having their certain views. It is such a critical election, uh, inflection in our history, that if we get it wrong, the cost will be enormous, more than any time in my long career, political career. So, so what is the most critical thing that the next government will have to do from you know, the day after the election, really. Well, look, you've got a massive cost of living crisis, and that concerns New Zealanders the most. You've got crime and gangs and illegal drugs, and that's of great concern to New Zealanders as well. And then you've got issues that are fundamental, like the health system and its failures, and people waiting so long and dying before getting the treatment they should get, and also third-world drugs when they should be on best compared to first-world uh, pharmaceuticals. Those are fundamentals. And we can go out, sit out to fix those things up and stop uh, a thing uh, called, um, how shall I put it, the decline of our status in the world and our position in the world. But there's something worse that's happening, and it's the status and threat to our democracy. It's called co-government, and it's got many faces, but it's about deleting the power of one person, one vote, and every vote being equal. And there have been numerous manifold attacks on it everywhere you look subtly and under the radar, but its long-term effect is to, by stealth, corrode our democracy and give preference to certain elites and not the mass majority. I mean, obviously, one of the clear examples of that that's created has been the Three Waters reform process. Presumably, you, you'd want to completely scrap that? 
Well, what do you mean presumably? I've been standing against this my whole career. I believe in one country, one people, regardless of our ethnic background, and I do not believe you get preference because of any ethnicity. That's not what democracy is about. And the people who will suffer the most from this sort of selective racism, so to speak, are the ordinary Maori themselves and ordinary working class people all over the country. Not a squeeze middle, but now way beyond 70% of our population, including many of the elderly who thought they could retire with some dignity and grace. But if we look at the negative statistics around health, around education, socioeconomic status, I guess imprisonment, Māori fall disproportionately into all of those negative numbers. Is there anything that's specific that needs to be done to turn that around? I mean, or, or do you... Because the current system doesn't seem to be working. Well, if you have a neoliberal experiment in the, 80, in the 1980s, first Rogernomics, then Ruthenomics, and see political parties like Labour collapsing and National collapsing as they did over those nine years, and you change to an MMP system for the last 30 years, and yet they carry on the same pathway without dealing to the big issues for this country, you're going to see all sorts of disproportionate, disproportionate outcomes. But I can remember an age when we were taking Māori to great education, to Māori housing in far greater numbers and far greater proportion, and where you had uh, Plunkett nurses and all sorts of medical availability, all the ways to dental nurses in our schools, and all the country schools as well. Physical education, all in the country schools as well. It was a country where, no matter how small you were, they were delivering the best they could. And they took us to number one in the world. That was our former greatness. And tinkering around the edges with blind, hard left and hard right ideology is not going to cut it in 2023. We've got to get back to basics and do all the fundamental things like housing, like health, like education escalators and take every child as far as they can go, and first world wages. And to do that, you're going to have to decrease business taxes so that business, small business and big businesses can pay the kind of first world wages we need. Otherwise, we're just going to see... As we're seeing now, 39,000 mainly young people off to Australia. And to cover it up, we've got, from all the other parties, a sugar hit of 100,000 immigrants come to New Zealand this year alone. No infrastructure whatsoever. Every crisis of infrastructure is now just going to be worsened. And in terms of our GDP per capita, because of that influx of people, we're all going to be worse off in terms of GDP. This is not rocket science. It's not... Difficult economics, it's just factual. How would you, I mean, you mentioned business, and one of the things business has been complaining a lot about, I guess, lately has been the lack of skilled staff. And that's been an argument that they've wanted immigrants to come in to provide the workforce. How do you, how do you manage those issues? Well, they're precisely right. But they will know, as I know, that the OECD has been saying it for years. New Zealand First has been arguing for years for a focused immigration policy that brings in the skills that we need for the gaps in our businesses and our education and our sciences that we might have. And we've been there for over 100 years needing that. And when we handled it well, we became a great country. But when we made just sheer numbers without quality and skills matching going with it, we've ended up with the disaster we've got now. And they, out of left field, Labour National prospect that in the last five weeks just like that. You, you, you talked about, obviously, um, cutting company tax, but at the same time, I know you've noted and made comments about the state of the government's books, and I think you've now looked at delaying your, your tax cut proposals, right? Well, we jettisoned our GST one because we knew it wouldn't have an effect, uh, but we have said that we need a mini-budget before Christmas and start sorting these things out. And how we're going to do that requires to be focused on the basics now, but... The only way out of this is the old-fashioned way of paying our way. Export, export, and do far more. Add value and don't just sell raw product. Add value to the max. Use your IT and skills and encourage that to the max as well. And get productivity changed, not just with commissions and talk and idle coffee room discussion, but real incentivization for machine change and infrastructure change that enables businesses to be far more efficient. And in doing that, we'll provide far more wealth and far more jobs all at the same time. It's not rocket it, science. As I say, Singapore's been doing it. Iceland and small countries. Ireland has done it magnificently. 
and so has Taiwan. Do name similar type so, countries. Is that, is, that, is that that through the use of like tax credits and what have you to um, encourage investment and exports? Or Most certainly. I'm all for international money in New Zealand if it's on our terms. But not to come over here and have what we've seen over and over again, a corporate raid on our ownership. So we're now working for some other economy and some other dividend holder in New York or somewhere else in Switzerland. No, we are a nationalistic party just like Singapore and Lee Kuan Yew's views that we need to maximise all incoming money that is going to be investing now in a business we haven't got for thousands of workers that are not being employed now, which they can do. Taiwan did it brilliantly, Ireland did it brilliantly, Singapore did it brilliantly, so why haven't we learned? Well, in terms of that mini-budget and those initiatives, do you see do you see some common ground with the National Party and possibly act that you could reach where you could put together some sort of package? Well, I can't understand the ACT Party's thing, and I'm, you know, I'm not being here critical. You've raised the question with me. But they came out with $38 billion of cuts. Now, if you could take that slash approach, you'll end up with a massive depression. I am looking at the National Party's package and I can't reconcile it because, not just me, but leading economists can't. The $14.5 billion prospect they put out is being pulled apart because no one can see the fiscals and the spreadsheet that makes it happen. They say it'll be, you know, 2.1 billion short or 500 million, million a year over the next four years. And there are other areas as well. But if they can show me how it can work, yes. However, it comes down to evidence and proof. And in terms of getting spending back under control, though, how do you, I guess, balance up pulling it back without, I suppose, necessarily making big cuts to the public service where, I guess, people lose jobs and, you know, potentially you could have a dampening effect on the economy. Yes, but it's not a matter of going there and just saying we're firing 14,000 people tomorrow. It's going to them and saying that job's not necessary. You need it over here. You need it over here. Let's relocate. There's natural attrition as well. We'll handle it that way, but we're not going to hire anybody new. And we're going to examine why and what people are doing now their present job and is it of value. I mean, I know Foreign Affairs just took uh, their Maori wing from 4 to 1 October, they're going to take it to 15. Now, at this critical time, that's not what Pacifica and Māori want at all. And I can show you this over and over again of non-productive bureaucracy when, in fact, sound bureaucracy run properly can be of help to a country, particularly when it's offshore trying to expand our trade rapidly. Winston Peters, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Every party but ACT appears to believe we're in the middle of a climate emergency. Yet climate change has not figured that prominently in the election debate. To talk about that, I'm joined by National's climate change spokesperson, Simon Watts, and climate change minister and Greens co-leader, James Shaw. Is that a fear that, you know, that we don't seem to be talking a lot about climate change in this election campaign? Is that a fear... Summary? I, 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 I think you're right in terms of what the politicians are saying. I have to say, I've actually been quite impressed with the media this election campaign because those questions are coming up from, uh, from members of the media and it has been a feature of some of the questions and some of the debates. That is a shift and I think that just reflects where we are as a country. Simon? Yeah, look, I think there's a contest of ideas at play here. And, you know, while we've got commitment across where we need to get to in terms of the future, we are having a debate, and a good debate, I think, around the pathway in order to achieve that. And I think as a country, I think that's positive for us because, you know, we're agreed around what we need to achieve, but how we get there and the pace of change is is the nature of the conversation. And I think... I think Kiwis can stand back and go, well, you know, that's a good conversation to be having. Well, let's talk about that because you would actually stop a number of the initiatives that this government has put in place. And I'm just wondering, do you agree that the curve has been kind of altered, that, you know, we've, we seem to see emissions coming down, that, that, that that's flattened and now... And I'm just wondering, do the changes you propose, do you risk putting, you know, put that at risk? 
No, look, I think what we are signalling is, is actually we're transitioning to a different way of delivering outcomes that are going to reduce our emissions profile. I think the EV vehicles is a great example. We don't support the uh, clean car discount, but we are supportive but of do, acknowledging... So, but do you, do you accept, though, that, I mean, looking at the numbers, that does seem to have helped increase the sale yeah. of EVs? But what we are focused on is the policy that we need to adopt in the next 75 months between now and 2030. And our view is, is one of the major impediments around EV uptake is range anxiety, and therefore we need to put in place the enablement infrastructure around charging infrastructure for EVs. You know, price point is becoming lesser and lesser of a consideration around the purchase of EVs. But we need that enablement infrastructure to come into play. You know, we are where we are. Uptakes faster than where the Climate Commission has expected around EVs. That's great. We need to continue that progression and acceleration. But we need to unlock some of the big barriers. And our view is infrastructure is going to be one of those big enablements. I guess you wouldn't disagree with extending the EV infrastructure. Oh, no, actually the government is already doing that so I mean that's actually really good that, that, that there's a level of agreement around that. I would argue that range anxiety is stopping people from buying electric vehicles. I think last month if I've got my numbers right something like 67% of all new car sales were EVs. I imagine out in uh, the regions though that wouldn't be nearly as high because people who need to travel longer distances obviously will have range concerns but we do need to build that, that, that highway network. There will be a point later this decade where uh, new EV price points you know, equalise with you know, um, internal combustion engine vehicles or petrol driven vehicles. We're not there yet and we are up against the clock. It has been an astonishingly successful um, um, policy and I think if you dismantle it now what you're saying is that you're going to reduce the cost of diesel vehicles and you're going to increase the cost of electric vehicles. And as a price signal, you can anticipate, of course, what that will mean, right? Is that people will just go back to using petrol vehicles the way that they were before we bought the clean car discount in. So whilst there will be a point when I don't think that that policy will be necessary, we are not at that point yet. Yeah, and that's where we would differ. Uh, you know, our view is, is that actually the market is already at a place where EVs is the default uh, position in terms of manufacturing offshore. Uh, we know that the pipeline around, you know, utes and other options are going to be here, you know, in the um, you know, foreseeable future. So we need to enable and get ready for that. And the electrification conversation is one of the single biggest things uh, that we should be focusing on in the next 75 months in order to get us on a trajectory to ensure that we meet our 2050 obligations and I think these things are, are correlated but you know uh, we are committed in order to make sure that we've got the parts of the puzzle in play so that we can absolutely maximise the uptake of those vehicles. So I don't, I don't actually dispute this point we have to electrify and you do need to build supply um, and you know when you have low cost uh, abundant electricity it makes it easier to um, switch so you essentially create induced demand of electrification but I don't think it's an either-or, it's actually an and. So you have to focus on both the demand side and the supply side. And on the demand side, every new vehicle or every new gas appliance that we buy locks you into a lifetime of needing to purchase fossil fuels. So you have to do the demand side stuff as well as the supply side stuff. So, so I mean, I think, Simon, is it fair to say that from National's perspective, you don't agree with incentives or subsidies to get either people or industry, because we, we think about the Industry Decarbonisation Fund, you, you don't believe that those initiatives should be used to, to bring down emissions? Yeah, look, we don't believe that we're dealing uh, with a scenario where there is market failure and therefore the government needs to step in and provide a subsidy in order to change that. We believe that the market has already moved. We believe consumer preference will be significantly continuing to transition to EVs in the next 75 months. And the, we see the key enablement and the key action that government can do is around making sure that we've got the infrastructure in place. I think that the challenge, and, and it's the Labor government, Government, you know, is the Minister for Energy. But you know, our challenge to, to Labor particularly is, is that we've had you know six years to get and maximise the rollout around renewable energy generation. And you know, with respect, I don't think we have moved at the pace required to set us ourselves up for success. And you know, that's where uh, I see and we see is one of the single greatest opportunities for us. If we get more renewable energy uh, generation investment in play, you know, we can in effect look to, and some commentators are indicating that you know, energy prices, household energy prices, will potentially stay at least flat or even reduced by 2030 and 2050. And you know, that's, that's a positive thing as well from a cost of living point of view. 
I'm sure you don't. I mean, obviously, you're pushing for more renewable energy. Yeah, we are, and actually at the household level for a couple of reasons. One of which is that if you help uh, homes to solarise, so our package around this is called the Clean Power Payment, right? And it's modelled off what the US have done with their Inflation Reduction Act, which is that you support houses to um, install, um, uh, you know, solar batteries, um, take out any gas appliances that they've got, and so on. Um, and help with the vehicle because that's where you, you know most of your fossil fuel uses. That ha has a downward pressure on 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 cost, right? Because the cost of installed solar is cheaper than either grid power or on 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 fossil fuels by some margin. So it does have an effect on uh, household living costs. It does help to bring household living costs. It does mean that you're enabling the uptake of electric vehicles because you know being able to charge at home is where most people will will actually charge rather than you know in town or anywhere anywhere else uh, and and it also builds up resilience because you know in the storms for example around Hawke's Bay or around Auckland if houses had had their own power supply then you know when the grid goes down or the local network goes down those houses have got power. I mean so I think National you'd let the ETS wouldn't you carry more of the load in terms of providing the, the signals to, to switch to, to low carbon or net zero sort of technologies. But I'm just wondering, though, if, if that's the case. No, won't, that, won't that mean higher prices? Look, the emissions trading scheme plays a critical role, and we are absolutely supportive of that as a market mechanism. But it's the, not the only uh, tool in the toolkit in which we need to deploy in order to reduce our emissions. I think in the solar space, you know, where I think we're around about 2% uh, uptake here in New Zealand, we need to significantly increase that. I'm absolutely, and we agree around resilient infrastructure, and we've seen that with the weather events. Um, our view is, is actually instead of, you know, subsidisation, there's, there's regulation that's potentially, or there is regulation that's uh, slowing the deployment uh, of solar out uh, across the country in a domestic setting. Uh, and that is the element that we would be focusing on trying to uh, ensure that we you know, release to enable more uh, rollout of that. It's part of the, the recipe, right? And it's just simply not the case that the ETS is the only ingredient. We need to uh, be targeting a range of initiatives in the transport and energy space, particularly uh, to reduce our carbon uh, you know, emissions. Now, agricultural emissions, on-farm emissions, I mean, you, you would put back by five years bringing farming in. Why? Well, Why? Look, we've said very clearly that uh, we are absolutely of the view that we need to have a price on agricultural emissions. We see that sitting outside of the ETS, and we will have a price for agricultural emissions by 2030. If there's an opportunity to do it earlier, we will move to do that, and um, we will start that work in 2024. But our immediate and short-term focus as a country needs to be around accelerating and turbocharging the uh, real options that are going to reduce livestock emissions, which is in the biotech space, which is around additives uh, for the reduction of methane for livestock. That is the game change opportunity. There's risk around that because we haven't got commercially scaled options at the moment. But that's what we see as the single biggest thing that government can do to try and accelerate and turbocharge that aspect. Because if we can solve that problem, which is one of the most gnarly problems in emissions for livestock around the globe, not only do we solve the, this, the issue for New Zealand, of which is 50%, we're able to survive and provide that information and that IP to other countries around the world. James Shaw? <coughs> this is another area where um, National are agreeing with uh, current government policy. So we've put about $350 million uh, into agricultural research and commercialisation of existing research established the new centre for um, agricultural emissions not just to do the primary research because you know we've across multiple governments spent about 200 million dollars on that already um, but how do you then get that to commercialization and about half of that money roughly has gone into a joint venture with some of the really significant players in the field such as Fonterra, Silverfin Farms and others who have come and put some of their own money into uh, you know, to kind of focus on that commercialisation. So I think that work will continue. That was a direct cross-subsidisation, by the way. That money came out of the ETS revenues that is going to disappear under a, a national government if there is one. Um, and, and that money has been transferred essentially from the carbon dioxide emitting part of the sector into the um, methane and nitrous oxide um, part of the economy. Okay, that's fine. But <clears throat> there's currently no 
price on agricultural emissions. Um, I th- you know, it's, that's actually been a real disappointment. That whole project. I think that the well, it's been delayed more than once, hasn't it? Well, I mean, it's been it's been delayed twenty five years, right? So, um, you know, we're just dealing with kicking the can down the road year after year, government after government. It's just sort of one of the patterns of activity in this country. I do think that the. Um, the Hiwaki Ekano proposal was unworkable. It replicates most of the failures of the first version of the ETS that we had, which is that you have a rock bottom price and no cap. What that means is, if you know, if the price is like six cents a kilo for, um, you know, milk solids, for example, and there's no cap, then most farmers will simply pass that on to their customers. Uh, and and without actually necessarily doing anything differently, that's exactly what happened under the ETS for you know roughly ten years. There was no cap. Prices were two dollars a ton, and businesses simply passed that that very very small cost on because it was lower than the cost of actually changing. So I do think that you need a proper cap and trade. I don't think it should be in the ETS because that means you're trying to hit three targets, three different curve rates with one policy instrument. That would be an abject failure. But if you said if you said that you had proper cap and trade. Peer-to-peer, farmer only, no outside speculators uh, for methane and for, and for nitrous oxide, and then you wouldn't have a committee of industry and MPI officials and ministers trying to work out what the price should be. You'd actually have farmers telling you what the price, well, telling each other what the price should be, because the ones who are really innovative and forward-leaning would work out how to get under that cap, and that might have a spare bit to sell to somebody down the road who, who's not as fleet as, as foot. And I think that would be great for productivity, you know, because it would mean that you'd, it would drive towards innovation, it would drive towards uptake, and it would be a farmer-to-farmer system. You see, but the challenge here, is, is that the government has had six years. This is not a new, we've just said it, it's 25 years in the making, but the last six years uh, we have not seen tangible progress in order to land this issue, and this is fundamental because it's 50% of our emissions profile. The policy we released earlier this year, before any of the major parties around agricultural emissions, sends a pathway and a clear plan on how to deal with this, and one in which industry are supportive of. And I think that is the challenge and the frustration. On-farm sequestration is also key and fundamental to our policy. If you can uh, absorb carbon on-farm and you can measure it, then you should be able to get a benefit from it from the ETS. Um, But we have not seen that degree of innovation or conversation uh, from this government, and, and whether that's just because you know Labor aren't agreed or, or it's not a priority, but we haven't seen that degree of progress. Uh, we, we've got to we've got to move and increase the pace of change in this space. Uh, and the reality is, uh, the big customers for Fonterra are, are demanding this. It's going to be consumer-led, globally-led consumer-led uh, around green agriculture. This is an opportunity for New Zealand. This is an economic opportunity. Uh, and I think we have to grasp it with everything we've got and accelerate uh, this because you know, the benefits are, are substantial. Uh, but actually, on the flip side, inaction, as we said in our policy, is not an option. Can I just say... On, <clears throat> I mean, I think there were a number of reasons, and there were government failures absolutely into why there was kind of essentially very little to no progress. But part of the problem was actually handing the keys to the industry themselves to develop a system, which meant that they were focused primarily on achieving consensus within the sector rather than on uh, developing a scheme which would be effective. Of course industry's are keen to kick the can down the road for another five years. That's what they've done for 25 years so far. You know, that I, I think that you've obviously got to bring the sector along along with you, but half of, asking them to design their own regulatory system has not worked for the last six years. The other thing I want to say just there about sequestration, that is another area where we've made significant progress. And so um, we, have, we actually have a work program in play at the moment, which should crystallise in legislative form, uh, reform in the not-too-distant future, I would say within about a year to 18 months, which does mean that all scientifically valid forms of sequestration will be recognised in the ETS, or will be able to be recognised in the ETS. That's taken a hell of a long time to get off the ground, but we are actually got some momentum on that. And I think, and that is really important because it, it does mean that landowners, not just farmers, but other landowners as well, will actually get recognition. And it also means that you get some biodiversity benefits because it means that things like wetlands or peatlands or mangroves and things like that, which most farmers actually desperately want to be able to have access to 
to because it would give them some reward for uh, for um, nature-based solutions so to the climate crisis. I wonder whether the challenge here is is because the climate change minister doesn't sit within cabinet within this government. The, you know, while there is absolute will, and I acknowledge the work of the minister in this space around you know leading the charge on this, you know the government have very much you know in one way not prioritised. And I think you know what nationalists see clearly is this role is a cabinet level role. This is a priority for a national league government, uh, and we need to just crack on and start doing the doing. And you know the the emphasis around the pace of change required is real. 75 months between now and 2030. That's not long. James Shaw, Simon Watts, thank you for your time. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Yesterday, the Labor Party released its fiscal plan detailing how its election commitments are affordable under the spending allowances included in the pre-election economic and fiscal update. I'm joined by Labor's finance spokesperson, Grant Robertson, who's obviously also finance minister. Um, so affordable, you've had it checked within the um, spending allowances, but not a hell of a lot of room to move, is there? No, that's right. And we actually made that clear in the budget in May and then reaffirmed it at Prefu that particularly Budget 2024 is going to be a tight budget. There's a little bit more room as we get out into Budget 25 and Budget 26. But we've made about $2.7 billion worth of cost pressure commitments. A big chunk of that's health spending because we now move into a new three-year track for health, uh, but obviously also for other areas where we've got to make sure we commit. And then enough money for the commitments that we've made during the election campaign above and beyond prefu. So budget 2024 will be tight. We've been signalling that for some time. It's the reason why we've been asking agencies to find that 1% to 2% of savings, and we're going to have to keep pushing on that as well. Nicola Willis says you've never met your spending commitments yet, so how, why will you meet these? Well, you know, the problem that Nicola has is that when we sit, set an allowance like we did in the half-yearly update budget policy statement December last year, and then we have a cyclone immediately after that, there's a choice. We could say to the people of Tairawhiti and Hawke's Bay, sorry, we've already set our allowance, there's no money for you, or we respond. And so we altered things in response to that. Um Bill English, Stephen Joyce, both had times where they also had to lift their allowances above what they'd set them in the middle of the year. For me, we've always got to remember that the allowances are a means to an end. They're a, a guide for your spending to make sure we meet the other commitments we make. In our case, that we'll get to surplus in the forecast period, that will keep net debt below 30% of GDP. We do that on these numbers, and we will do that. We will commit ourselves to keeping to those fiscal rules, and we will, subject to there being something happen between now and when we do the budget, stick to those allowances. Well, I mean, in terms of net debt as a proportion of GDP, and I want to refer back to the old measure, mm -hmm. because in 2020, um, the Treasury in the budget forecast was forecasting that it would go up to 53%. Mm. Now it's forecasting it going to, what, 40%? Yeah, or just on. So presumably... What well, does that mean? Well, that's also the other factor is that in times in previous budgets where we have um, gone above the allowance we set at the budget policy statement, we've undershot on debt, we've undershot on unemployment, and so they're the indicators that we set, and the allowances are a means to an end to that. We've got to be careful in these coming budgets, and I have been signalling this for some time. There was a big investment of money through the COVID period to get New Zealanders through. Investments in the cost of living pressures and easing those for people. Now, as inflation starts to come down, this is the bit where we bring government spending back down as a percentage of GDP. So we've got a couple of budgets here where there's not a lot of room. Enough room to do what we need to do to look after New Zealanders and their public services, but not a lot of room for splashing around big new promises. I mean, obviously, with an election coming, politically, on one level, you're being criticised by parties of the right and by Nicola Willis and others that you're spending too much, you won't speak. I guess on the other side, from what, you know, maybe your supporters, <laughs> yeah. they're getting into you for not spending enough. Yeah, and look, this is a common refrain for the Minister of Finance and a Labor Minister of Finance. We've got to get the balance right here. And we have invested significantly in public services and we're keeping on doing that. But we also do have obligations in terms of 
future generations, that we don't let debt get out of control and that the, we do get the government's books back into surplus. And so I've tried through six years to find and navigate the balance, and there have been a lot of challenges in the midst of that, and we've had to respond to those, and we keep, we'll keep doing that. But you know, I guess the criticism from both sides indicates that maybe we've got it about right. But, but, but in that sense, though, but how do you win the political yeah. argument around this? Because that seems to be the... Yeah. You get it wrong for both sides on that. <laughs> yeah, look, I, th I think what people appreciate is the way that we have managed in a careful and balanced way uh, the New Zealand economy. Um, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the fact that the outside observers, the international rating agencies and others say, yep, we think you're doing okay here. We're going to maintain your very good credit ratings. And I think when people look around a world that's tremendously uncertain and volatile, the certainty and stability that we can provide, I think, is welcomed. And certainly as Minister of Finance, I've tried to be consistent, so I'm not suddenly going to lurch out there now. This is a continuation of a process where we worked hard to support New Zealanders through the pandemic and the cost of living crisis. Now we come out the other side. Economic data is starting to improve. We've turned a corner there. Inflation's going to come down. Now's our moment to be able to consolidate what we've done, lock in the gains, but also start to look at those bigger macroeconomic indicators, bring them back to where we want them to be. I mean, you've been under pressure over tax as well, and, and you've said that there's no room for, for tax cuts or, or, or other tax changes, presumably, presumably tax increases. I mean, but... When is the right time to look at the tax system? Yeah, look, I think there's there's two things here. There's looking at the tax system and then there's making those major changes. And from our perspective, you know, no matter how you cut it, the next three years are a period of consolidation for the New Zealand economy. I think we will get to good solid levels of growth. Treasury are saying in the latter two years of the forecast period, up over 3%. That'll be terrific. That will then begin the time for the conversation about a whole lot of other things we might like to do. But I strongly believe that that period of consolidation shouldn't see us chuck a whole lot of things up in the air. We need to be consistent. Um, it's certainly no room right now for the big tax cuts that National's promising. I think almost everyone accepts now they can't actually make the way they've calculated them add up. I heard Christopher Luxon say yesterday he's committed to them, which I presume then means there will be further cuts to public services in order to fund them. It's not the time for that. It's not the time for big tax cuts. It's the time for consolidation and locking in the gains that we've made. I mean, and you've already now, and I think we've heard stories of various government departments and agencies starting to look mm. to cut back. I mean, what impact will that have j just in terms of what you're proposing? Yeah, and so, look, we worked really hard as we went through that to make sure we targeted that. So, firstly, no cuts to frontline services. We've been very clear about that. Secondly, we... you know, But, we, but have you been clear? Because it's easy to say that. Yeah. But sometimes you can cut backroom services. Which affect Which affect, line. yeah. And that's the conversation. So, you know, obviously because this is a piece of work we did with the Treasury rather than as Labor, the Treasury is already working with agencies on that and on making sure that the final decisions about those things will ultimately rest with ministers who will be able to say, does that change affect a frontline service? We also took some agencies out because we said, actually, we just want to make sure that they can settle in and do the job that they've got to do. Uh, with the 1% to 2% changes, I believe that's realistic, particularly if you look at level of expenditure on consultants and contractors. We had a lot of that through COVID. We had a lot of that for the big picture reforms, things like the RMA reforms and so on that we were doing. Now that can exit out. So I can see a significant amount of savings that are possible there. And then just being more efficient about what we do. And one of the things we asked um, chief executives when we announced this was, Talk to the unions, talk to the people in your workplace, because actually, like most businesses, those on the shop floor will be able to identify ways that we can be more effective and efficient. You can do that when it's a 1% or a 2% cut. I don't believe you can do that when it's a 6.5% cut, which is what National are having to do in order to fund part of what they need for their tax promises. And for Labor too, then, if it's three years of consolidation fiscally, does that mean, too, that it's three years of consolidation policy-wise, that, you know, the big reforms you've been doing, that you'll let those settle in? That you well, there's plenty of still work still to go on you know, things like water reforms, um, finalising the polytechnic reforms, bedding in the health reforms. There is still some space for new commitments, and we, we've made those during during the election campaign, things like the free dental care promise and, and so on. So 
there is room for that. And as we go into other budgets, there'll be small amounts of money to do that. But I do think um, there's a lot of work to be getting on with it. It was one of the first things Chris Hopkins did when he became the leader was say, you know what, we've got a lot of balls in the air here. Let's let's make sure we finish the work that we need to do there. But there'll always be more to do. There always is in government. We just have to make sure we can cut our cloth to fit that. Grant Robertson, thank you for your time. Thanks, Brent. The economy is at a set of traffic lights, so they green, orange, or even red. Uh, political editor Brent Edwards has been pondering that question. Now, Brent, if this was an episode of Top Gear, you'd be in a Toyota Corolla, wouldn't you? In the green zone? <laughs> yeah, well, pretty much. Well, actually, now Toyota CHR. Which okay. Is, yeah. uh, well, you've been pondering this. Why? Well, look, it, it starts because obviously the National Party released its welfare policy this week and it's a traffic light um, system. You know, it seems to be traffic lights, the green, orange and red light system seems to be applying to almost everything now. And with that, on, on welfare, they are going to, if, if someone, a beneficiary is on the green light, everything's hunky-dory, no problem. If they're on orange, it means they have once or twice not met their obligations and they'll start to come under scrutiny. And if they're at a red light, means they've not met their obligations on three occasions and therefore they'll start to face sanctions, including cuts to their benefits. And so it kind of got me thinking around, you know, that red, the traffic light system, is that really relevant to welfare? Is it relevant to the economy? And the kind of commentary that we're getting around just how bad things are now and people often um, saying, you know, in living memory, it's, it, you know, things have never been as bad as terrible, yeah. you know. Um, if you look at welfare, well, no. Um, in you your living memory? Well, my living memory, and I'm, you know, I'm not that old yet. But <laughs> well, if you think back in 1999, you know, there yeah. were f- 400,000 people on on benefits. You know, at the moment there are about what 360,000, I think. If if we were to meet that number in terms of proportion of the population, you'd you'd be up, up well over half a million, and, and we're not. So while the number of people on benefits is an issue, and, and obviously you want to try and help as many people back to work as you can. Uh, it is not, in a relatively recent historic context, as bad as it's got. Mm. What about the overall economic position? How does that compare with the past? Yeah, well, again, it's, you know, I mean, clearly there are economic difficulties. No one will mm. deny that. I mean, in inflation particularly. But, I mean, if the arguments around the state of the government's books, um, for instance, in the pre-election economic and fiscal update, the Treasury is now forecasting that uh, net debt as a proportion of GDP, and I'm using the old measure, mm. not the new measure the government's introduced, but the old measure, that it'll peak at, a, at 40% um, in the next couple of years. Now, back in 2020, the Treasury was forecasting that it would peak at 53%. So it's actually a lot better than its earlier forecasts. Um, and go back in 1991, mm. it did reach 53%, 54%. Uh, if you talk about debt, debt financing costs then did exceed total education spending, whereas now debt um, financing costs are set to exceed what the government will spend on schools, but not on all education. So so again, in the context, yeah, it's serious. And, and given the history of what happened then, Governments do need to think about, well, how do they ensure that they get the books back into surplus and that they don't just keep on adding more and more debt? But it's not as bad as it has been. If we use this traffic light formula, how bad is the economy? Is it red, orange or green? Well, I guess, you know, that's a judgment call. But, you know, it might be you might say that it's orange and possibly doesn't know whether to go forward or whether to stop. It's been going forward, though, the latest economic figures, what the mm. economy grew 3.2% in the year to the end of June. Uh, people then look at other forecasts and say, oh, well, it doesn't look very good the year out. So, And, I mean, depending on where you sit on this political spectrum, if you're the government, you keep on looking at those numbers and say, hey, look, things are going great. Opposition, they look at forecasts ahead, which show that maybe it'll soften even more, and they point to those. But I think we're at an orange light. Um but, you know, I think probably for those looking at all of the political parties, it's a bit like when you're at an intersection with the lights. It's always, you should be cautious, look both ways. Bring it with thinking. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening. <laughs>